are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Today's reading is from Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Well, thank you, Laura, for reading scripture for us. Laura's just joined our leadership team, official as of January 1st, as we welcomed our new leadership team members. So thank you, Laura. Great to have you read. Before we turn our attention to Ruth chapter one, I just want to pause a few minutes and speak a little bit to the events that unfolded this week in our nation's capital. It was a tough week, a tough week for our country. I've been thinking since Wednesday about what it looks like to address this well as we gather together for worship. Now, one of the things that we cherish about our church community is that we come from diverse backgrounds. We're a diverse people, and there's different opinions and political convictions that are all part of our church community. There are some with deeply held party loyalties, and some with strong opinions, and some with less so. And however we're wired and whatever we bring to the table, we recognize that all of that gets to take a back seat as we follow Jesus together. It's one of the beautiful things about the church. It's the way it should be. The church of the New Testament was like this, a place where every other affiliation or conviction comes under the lordship of Jesus and his word. I'm not concerned to say something political you know my heart. That's not what we do. But I am concerned, and we are committed to say something biblical, or rather maybe to ask, what does the Bible have to say to us in this moment? 
Earlier this week, I wrote in a prayer email to our prayer team in the preface, I put these words from Habakkuk 1.3, destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. And maybe this week you have felt the weight of that for our country. It feels like we're in this place where we're stuck in the abounding of conflict and then destruction and violence follow on its heels like it did this week. The Bible knows this reality. And here's a couple things, just a couple things that it would say. First, that we don't ultimately have a political problem. We have a sin problem, a problem of the heart and the mind that are in rebellion against the holy God. And where people have not bowed in repentance before Jesus as their first love and their highest loyalty, then things indeed will fall apart. And so when we pray, let's not pray primarily for political solutions, but for people to turn to the living God in this land and for spiritual renewal to come. Secondly, we as the church have to show a better way. Jesus said to his disciples, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so the reverse must be true too. They will not know that we are his disciples if we don't love one another. Do you think Jesus' disciples had some differences among them, among the 12? I was thinking of some of them this week. Simon the Zealot, a political activist. Some scholars even use the term extremist for him. Simon the Zealot. But Jesus says to him, Simon, come and follow me. Be zealous for me. And he does. And alongside Simon the Zealot, there's Matthew the tax collector. That's a funny combination, isn't it? Those two guys, the one wants to overthrow the government. The other works for the government. And yet Jesus says, Matthew, come and follow me. Then there's James and John, who are known as the sons of thunder, possibly an indication of their temperament, if one story that we have about them is any indication. And who could forget Peter, who grabs a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and slashes off a man's ear? What did Jesus say to him? He commanded him, it says, put away your sword. True disciples are called to a higher standard, to show the grace and love of Christ. When our church staff met this week on Thursday morning, and we met on Zoom just to start our meeting. We read from 1 Corinthians 13. That's this passage that's often read at weddings. And yet we need to remind ourselves, Paul actually wrote this to a ragtag group of people called the church. And he said, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Our nation needs to see these things. And if not here, from the church, then where? But may God give us all grace in our words, in our thoughts, and in our actions. And may his word truly be our highest authority, that the Bible would have the say over our politics and not the other way around. Know too that if there's any processing you would like to do of even to follow up to what I've shared today, or you just want to pray or 
share frustrations, whatever it might be, we're here for you. So feel free to reach out to me directly or to the church office. We would love to be in touch this week. All right, we take a deep breath and we say, the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth. How are we going to make this kind of segue from what we just talked about to this? Well, it's actually not that hard. Not as hard as you'd think, because you know when this took place, this book of the Bible, this is going to sound some of it a little bit familiar. One scholar said it was an era of frightful social and religious chaos. It was a time of violent invasions, apostate religion, unchecked lawlessness, and tribal civil war. I read that this week in my study, and I thought, this is pretty timely that we are diving into the book of Ruth. Now, for some of us, I'm sure this is the first time that you will have ever read Ruth. You maybe even didn't know that this little book of the Bible existed, tucked away as it is in the Old Testament. For others of us, you maybe knew of Ruth and maybe even read some of it, but for many of us, we're really not that familiar with this book of the Bible. And I'd say that for myself too. I remember though, when I was maybe about 19, I heard a four-part series on the book of Ruth, the college I attended. And 19 was 20 years ago now, so you know you can do the math and see where I'm at. But those messages were so profound and moving and introduced me to Ruth in a way that I just never expected. I've never forgotten. And I hope that we get to do something of the same kind of thing over the next four weeks. We're going to study one chapter per week. The scripture reading will always kind of get us started into the story for that Sunday, and then we'll fill in the details and finish it off. But here's what you should know right off the bat about Ruth. This is one of the clearest displays of the gospel in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we meet Jesus as our Redeemer, but in the Old Testament, that is foreshadowed by the kinsman Redeemer of Ruth. Let's dive in here to what Laura shared with us this morning as the book begins. It says this story happened in the days when the judges ruled. Now, this was a pretty dark time period in Israel's history. This was the time after the death of Joshua, but before the coronation of Saul as king. On the calendar, it would have been something like 1200 to 1020 B.C., And during that time, the people of God were living in the promised land where he brought them to, but they just kept losing their way in relationship to God. They'd worship idols and they'd introduce all kinds of wickedness and immorality and evil practices into the land. And you remember how the Old Testament covenant worked. I mean, when the people walked with God, he said, blessings will follow. And yet when they would walk away from God, then judgment would follow. And so that's the pattern in this time period of the judges. A foreign power would invade and make life miserable for the people. And then that would get their attention and they would repent for their sinfulness and they'd cry out to God to save them. And then he would do that through a judge. Not a judge like we typically would think, sitting on the bench with the gavel in the courtroom. No, their judge was more like a local military leader among God's people. So some of the most well-known judges, and thinking of the Beginner's Bible, I know these stories are there. We have Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. Of course, there's quite a few others, but those would be three of the well-known ones. 
And it's this time period when the story of Ruth happened. It says in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And then the story zeroes in on the effects of the famine on a particular family in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, we know, of course, from the Christmas story. It was this small, insignificant place about six miles south of Jerusalem. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. In fact, this was a great area for agriculture. So if you went to the market in Bethlehem, then you would find heaps and heaps of wheat and barley. You'd find jars of olives, baskets of almonds, and bowls of grapes. This plentiful food source in this region. But now all that has changed because a famine has come into the land. And the situation is so severe that there is this certain family that decides they've got to move to survive. That's the scene that we're introduced to as we meet Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons. And the place where they go is called Moab. Now on the map, you see Moab east of the Dead Sea. It was this mountainous region with a fertile plateau about 25 miles wide that ran along the sea's eastern shore. That's where Elimelech takes his family. And going to Moab shows just how desperate they must have been. You see, in the history of the Israelite people, the Moabites had been one of their most reviled and consistent enemies. So to go there and to seek refuge would have been shameful at best and dangerous and a risk to their lives at worst. But just trying to survive, this family of four settles where there is food and there is food in Moab. And then the next shoe drops. Somewhere in those years there, far from home, Elimelech dies and Naomi becomes a widow. She and her boys grieve the passing of their father, but the presence of the boys is also a a balm to their mother's heart. You know, the fact that she has her two sons with her, all hope is not lost. And those sons then mature into young men, and each of them in time finds a wife among their Moabite neighbors. The first one mentioned is Orpah. Orpah. And I wonder if you know that this is where the name Oprah comes from. Oprah Winfrey gets her name from here. Her aunt Ida picked this name Orpah from the book of Ruth. And that's what it says on her birth certificate for Oprah Winfrey. But when she was young, people kept mispronouncing it and they'd flip the R and the P. And so eventually it just kind of stuck and she went with Oprah. So a little fun Bible trivia fact for you. So there's Orpah. We'll call her Orpah when we're studying the book here. And then the other daughter-in-law is, of course, Ruth. And I suppose that with these two marriages in the family, there came a fresh wind of hope into Naomi's life. You know, the house wasn't so quiet anymore. And time passed, and she probably started to anticipate the pitter-patter of little feet and then the presence of grandchildren that hopefully would come. But 10 years went by, and there were no grandchildren. And then one day, an unthinkable tragedy struck. We're not told how it happened, but both of the brothers, her sons, Malon and Kilion, pass away. Naomi 
has a, an almost Job-like story, doesn't she? I mean, this is loss upon loss upon loss. This is not what she had planned for. This wasn't the life that she had imagined when she and Elimelech celebrated their wedding all those years ago back in Bethlehem. Enduring a famine that wasn't on the list, having to move away from home to survive, becoming a widow in a foreign land, and then losing her two sons to death. But what we should also underscore here is that there are further implications for a woman in this situation in their very patriarchal culture. So she doesn't have a husband. Now she doesn't have sons, and she doesn't have grandsons. One commentary pointed out the greatest tragedy in Israel was for a family to cease to exist, for the family name to just disappear. And on a practical note, without a man in the family, there was no means of protection or provision. Naomi had experienced a total loss. She was an aged widow without children and with no one to care for her. And that is now the scene in Moab. And I wonder, what are the parts of your life that have not panned out the way that you planned? An empty seat at the table. Maybe a job that didn't pan out the way that you wanted it to. A move that you didn't want to make. A marriage that ended. An accident that happened. A diagnosis that changed everything. If you know any of these things, the book of Ruth is for you because it shows us that the Lord does not forget his people, even ordinary people in far-flung places. In verse 6, Naomi hears word from home that the famine has now ended and once again there's food in Bethlehem. In her grief, at least she's now going to be able to return to her homeland, finally, after all these years. So she packs up her things, Orpah and Ruth still by her side, and they set out on the road to Judah. But not far along, Naomi turns to her daughter-in-laws and says in verse 8, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. Now, the word kindness is one of the most important words in the Bible, the word that's found there. It's the Hebrew word chesed, and it's a word that really is kind of hard to capture in one English translation. It's the covenant love of God, his compassion, his loyalty, his loving kindness. And here Naomi is wishing God's covenant love, his chesed, to these two Moabite women. And in extending this blessing, this kind of formal word that she offers here, she's also essentially freeing these two young women from any future responsibility that they would have toward her. She's ending their familial relationship for the sake of these two young women. She says, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Well, as you know from our reading, Orpah and Ruth resist. And there's tremendous affection that we see in what's left of this family. After Naomi says this, it says that they're all crying together. And the two younger women turn to Naomi and say, no, we will go back with you to your people. 
And that's when Naomi now gets real serious and she sits them down and says, this will be my paraphrase a little bit, but she says, look, there's no future for you with me. I'm too old to remarry and have children. And even if I did, I'd need to have two more sons. And then would you really wait all those years in order for them to grow up so you could marry them? And what's referenced here is some of the Israelite marriage customs that maybe are a little foreign to us. But Naomi is concluding saying, no, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. That's a strong statement. And Naomi has made her case. The ladies weep together again. And then Orpah, for her part, takes her mother-in-law's advice and says goodbye. But Ruth, it says, clung to her. And now we get into the remaining verses that we didn't read earlier. Naomi looks down at her daughter-in-law, perhaps clinging to her skirt, kneeling at her feet. And she says, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go with her. What will Ruth do? Do you see the choice that's before her? She's in the valley of decision. On one side is everything that she's ever known her Moabite home, her people, her family. And in the other direction, it's completely unknown. Naomi's home, Bethlehem, and the God named Yahweh. Now, Orpah did the sensible thing. Notice her choice. Orpah's choice is not criticized. She did what was expected, and she went back home. The question is now if Ruth will do the same. Naomi says, look, go back with her. And that's when Ruth stands to deliver one of the most stunning, beautiful lines in the Hebrew Old Testament. She rises to her feet, wipes the tears from her eyes, and she says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. These are the first recorded words of Ruth in this book. And they are a towering example of faithfulness in the Bible. Each one of us stands in the valley of decision where we can either stick to our old ways or we can step out in faith and boldly follow Jesus. This is the way of discipleship. And it is this kind of proposal that is presented to disciples. Simon, Jesus says, do you want to be a zealot or do you want to follow me? Matthew, do you want to just get rich sitting in your tax collector's booth? Or do you want to follow me? Peter, James, and John, do you want to just catch fish all your life? Or will you follow me and be fishers of men? I don't know all the unplanned things that have happened in your life. The things that have been beyond your control. The things that you never wished for. But there is always one call that you get to make. 
And that is what you're going to do with Jesus. Ruth says yes. Not just to Naomi, but ultimately she is saying yes to life with Yahweh. She walks away from her old familiar ways and she says yes to a life of faith. She abandons the ordinary sensible thing to do and decides to go with God. Orpah we understand, but Ruth is who we want to resemble. While time is fleeting and the chapter is coming to a close, in verse 19, Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. And as they enter the gate and they walk through the streets, the whole town is abuzz with news that Naomi has returned after all these years. If you grew up in a small town, then you know exactly what this is like and just how fast word can travel. When I first flew to Germany, Esther and I were just friends from college and I visited her family in their small little village. And when I would walk down the the streets, I could see people peering out their windows, peeking through the curtains at me. And I would look over and catch their eye and then they'd back away and the curtain would fly shut. And I remember asking Esther, you know, why are they staring at me? And she said to me, oh, everyone's talking about the American who's in town. That's life in a small town. And so we're traveled fast through Bethlehem. And after all these years, here we have Naomi returning to the streets that she knew. And what also a painful return that was, as will be evident in some of the words that she says, you know, because she can see this little street corner or, or that little market stand where she used to shop with her two little boys by her side. Memories of life with Elimelech and their sons. And so here she is, but there's no Elimelech. No sons that anybody can see. It's just Naomi. And she says in verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Uh, Naomi means pleasant, by the way, which is why she says that. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. You know, when a friend is grieving, it is okay. It is probably good to just let them vent. You know, when someone's grieving, that is probably not when they're going to make precise theological statements. Did God cause all this for Naomi? Was it really him who made her life bitter and afflicted her by his hand? These are the things that she says. And those questions They're just not addressed. But thankfully, we have books like Ruth and Job and so many of the Psalms that show us that God welcomes utter honesty from his children. And he knows anyway, doesn't he? And yet, even in Naomi's accusations, there is this affirmation of God's sovereignty. If God did this, then he can undo it. And if he didn't do it, then only he can defeat whoever did. William Cowper, who experienced many afflictions in his life, said, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Chapter one in Ruth is largely about a season of frowning providence in Naomi's life. 
but the smiling face of God is upon her. Verse 22, the conclusion, it says, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. You see those final words of hope on the horizon? The fields are ripe again. The famine is over. The harvest has begun. Meanwhile, back here in Minnesota, it's January, and we're about as far away from the harvest as you can get. The fields are definitely not covered in barley right now. They're covered in snow. And what a week we had just seeing the beautiful sights all around us. I mean, only God could take the cold winter and turn it into a work of art. And so I was reminded this week, amidst ugly scenes from our nation's capital, that the Lord was painting a masterpiece back here at home. And so we trust him for brighter days ahead. Let's pray together. Lord God, the Almighty, Yahweh, you alone are the one who is worthy of our praise. No politician, no political system, no plan or scheme of man. And we pray so desperately for our country right now, Lord, for peace, for healing from division, for unity. And above all, Lord, we're praying for hearts that would return to you. And may we as your people, the church, may we lead the way in these things. Lord, that you would use us to show the world what your love looks like, the kind of God that you are. In our own little lives, Lord, we ask that you teach us to be faithful when things don't go as we've planned. When our life is upended, may you be our right side up, Lord. May you be our anchor. May you be our every hope. And give us the bold faith and the commitment of Ruth that we would be able to say, where you go, Lord, I go. Where you stay, I stay. We ask, Lord, that you would always stay with us, that you would keep us in your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.